Welcome to MIM Cuts to the Chase podcast series. I'm your host, Guy Hazelman. Today, we're going to discuss infrastructure investments. Our guest is Syed Ahmed, a member of the infrastructure and project finance team at MetLife Investment Management. Syed and his team are responsible for transaction sourcing, originating, underwriting, and portfolio management of infrastructure assets in the United States, Canada, Europe, Latin America, and Australia. Since inception, MIMS infrastructure portfolio has grown to about $34 billion. Welcome, Syed. Thank you, Guy. It's really nice to be here. I'm happy to be talking to you about infrastructure. It's a fascinating and relevant topic, and there's certainly been a great deal of publicity in recent years around the need for investment and upgrades to infrastructure. When most people hear the word infrastructure, I bet they think roads, bridges, and tunnels. To expand on that thought, I recently read an article that said that more than one-third of the nation's 600,000-plus bridges need structural repair or replacement, and that over 45,000 are actually categorized as, quote, structurally deficient, unquote. And I find that a terrifying thought. But the term infrastructure is about so much more than roads and bridges and such. I've heard you mention that it includes things like power grids, water control and delivery, rail freight projects, or even the cleaning up of Superfund sites. And there's even so much more, but that is some context for our discussion. But first, I've heard you also talk about something that you are deeply involved in, which you refer to as social infrastructure. Can you tell us what that is and how it differs from some of the things I just mentioned? Sure, and uh, thanks for that question. Uh, Social infrastructure is a subset of core infrastructure, and it includes assets such as hospitals, schools, courthouses, wastewater, basically every asset that can support a local economy. There is great need for, and I would even say a desire for these types of projects and upgrades for long-term sustainability. And the need is more than just the older age of the existing assets. It's also a result of shifting population trends and a result of the advancements in technology that we're seeing every day. It seems to me that there should be great support for social infrastructure projects, things that kind of improve the local economy around you, because those are the assets that directly impact people on an almost daily basis. So I would think there would be great desire for those projects. Is that right? That's exactly right, and it's a great observation. Uh, Social infrastructure plays an important role in development and maintenance of our society's quality of life. After all, who wouldn't want modern hospitals, schools, or protections against flooding or wastewater? And the best part is you can see the direct tangible impacts of these projects that benefit communities, which to me is personally very, very rewarding. Well, that's great to hear. I can sense your passion, and you certainly said it better than I did. Uh, The rationale for these projects sounds easy and makes sense, but I bet it takes a lot to get these projects done. I know your involvement covers areas such as sourcing and finding those projects and then underwriting them as an investment. So my question is, how are deals typically structured and how are the projects paid for? 
The U.S. is an interesting area when it comes to these types of projects. Most U.S. investments in social infrastructure have largely been funded by municipalities on, on balance sheet financing. But the U.S. has been learning from its friends in Canada, Australia, and the U.K., where social infrastructure projects have mostly been supported over the past few decades by public-private partnerships, or PPPs. The U.S. has been late to the game, but it has the potential to become one of the largest markets in the world, given the sheer size of its infrastructure need and the appetite for private capital. As a matter of fact, the U.S. now ranks fourth in the world by deal value for greenfield or projects that are in construction and using the PPP framework. Well, it's nice to see that the U.S. is finally catching up. Generally speaking, though, how do PPPs work? PPPs are exactly as the name implies. It's a partnership between a public and private sector for the delivery of a public asset. The model allows each side to do what it does best. The model allows the public sector to transfer key risks over to the private sector, which typically includes construction, financing, operational, and or sometimes maintenance risks that are involved. The transfer of the main project risk to the private sector is potentially the biggest benefit, simply because the private sector is generally better equipped to handle these types of risks. The partnership is not an asset privatization as there is no transfer of ownership of these assets to the private sector. The public authority owns the asset the entire time. And what public authorities often run is a value for money exercise, which helps convince its constituents on the time value of money on using a PPP relative to a standard model where the public authority would do this on its own uh, without using the private sector at all. Well, that makes sense, actually, that they do it that way. Uh, let's go back a second. Why was the U.S. so slow in adopting PPPs in the first place? That's an interesting uh, point. Uh, I think the U.S. was slow to adopt PPPs because of the perception that the public and private sectors don't necessarily want the same things. There have been situations in the past where the strategy around asset privatizations did not execute as planned. And uh, there has been an evolution in understanding the PPP process as well. Uh, the time value of money adds uh, a benefit to the project, which needs to be explained. And in addition, there are several more layers of complexity when it comes to the US. You have governments that are based on the federal level, on the state level, and even down to the county and city level. So when you think about financing these projects, you could have any one or all of these entities supporting a project, which just adds a bit of more layer of complexity when it comes to funding. So that then brings me back to my earlier question, who pays for it? Meaning, you know, I'd like to know too, how does the flow of money work in a PPP and how does the funding then end up getting pushed into the project itself? Unlike economic assets where a user is paying a fee, so if you're going through an airport or a toll road where there are tolls and passenger fees, social infrastructure typically doesn't generate the same level of fees to allow for self-funding. The most widely used funding model for social PPPs is something called the availability-based model. Under the availability-based model, the private and public partners negotiate a long-term concession whereby the public authority agrees to pay a fixed periodic payment to the private entity for the delivery of the, the key risks that we mentioned earlier, which would include delivery, operation, and maintenance of the asset. 
This allows the public authority to source the project without massive upfront costs that would likely stress its balance sheet. And these projects are typically bid for by multiple private entities, allowing the public authority to pick the best bid. And it's not only based on economics, it's also based on the technical qualifications of the team. Are some type of performance metrics applied to the project? Absolutely. When the public authority transfers these assets to the private sector, they place a number of performance measures to ensure that these assets are delivered on time, on budget, and maintained at the highest quality. At the end of the concession period, the asset is required to be handed back to the public authority under a predetermined asset condition, which requires the private sector to make sure that the asset is back to the same quality as it was first handed over to them. Have you seen any new trends to be developed or have technological advancements increased efficiencies in any way? Yes, absolutely. We're seeing that day to day. Uh, newer projects look to capitalize on modern technologies and responsible design principles. Earlier, I mentioned how I find it personally rewarding to be involved in projects that are viewed as projects that are making the communities better. The trend now, certainly for me and my group, are for projects to commit to best practice standards like those put forth by the UN Responsible Investing Network. There are ways to complete these projects and investments that take green initiatives and impact guidelines into account, and it is new technologies that are used. In addition, certain authorities also require contractors to meet diversity-based qualifications, enhancing the social elements of project. I believe committing to these standards and abiding by ESG principles and long-term sustainability metrics is how you do it right and how you do it responsibly. And to me, that is definitely very rewarding. I would think it's both rewarding and, and pretty interesting. So can you give us an actual example of a deal? Sure. I think we have many examples, but I can use the one we did uh, last year, which is where our private capital team led a PPP transaction that we believe is the first of its kind in North America involving a public school system in the US. We loaned about $203 million, which was a little less than one half of the full financing package to support the future education needs of the district. The district is the second largest public school system in the state and a top 20 in the US. The project was seeking financing to replace the aging school buildings that were uh, within this district. And the design-build project also involved the demolition of four aging schools and the simultaneous construction of six new schools, which will provide a modern learning environment for approximately 8,000 students that go to the school district. The project will also employ over 4,000 people and requires at least 30% of the contracted value of the project to be allocated to local and minority-owned businesses, which really enhances the ESG principles in our perspective. I think that was an excellent example as to why you feel rewarded in the work that you do. Certainly those were some powerful numbers that you used in the example. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and insights with us today and uh, we'll have to do this again soon and get an uh, update on some more deals that you're up to. Of course, we'd be happy to share and thanks for having me again. It is not MetLife Investment Management's intention to provide, and you may not rely on this podcast as providing, a recommendation with respect to any particular investment strategy or investment. The information and opinions presented or contained in this podcast are provided as of the date it was published.